0: There's an ancient Chinese saying that goes, may you live in interesting times. May you come to the attention of the government or authorities. May you find what you're looking for. In its original form, this was considered a curse, although no one knows the originator of these words. Well, curse or not, we do live in interesting times. Some might say, challenging times. Evil is expanding, and the voices of righteousness are being drowned out by the noise of the degenerate. According to the Journal Perspectives in Sexual and Reproductive Health, 22% of all pregnancies in the United States now end in abortion, well over one million a year. After an eight-year hiatus, our government has reinstituted the celebration of homosexuality by re-declaring June lesbian-gay Bisexual Transgender Pride Month, Pride Month, somewhere along the line, toleration moved to celebration. Interesting how that happens. Ravi Zacharias has said, you can tell a lot about a culture by what makes it laugh and by what makes it cry, all the more. What a culture celebrates speaks volumes about it. Now, we need to be clear here. I want you to listen very carefully. Both abortion as a method of contraceptive convenience and homosexuality are sins that are covered by the blood of Christ. There is no sin for which Christ did not die. I have to stress this because it's estimated that up to one-fourth, up to one-fourth of Christian women, women sitting in church on any given Sunday morning have had abortions. And I want you to know that God does forgive. He forgives that sin just like he would forgive any other sin. I'm saying abortions that are used as a method of contraceptive convenience. He forgives that sin. That it's not an unforgivable sin. We need to remember that. And it's the same with homosexuality. Over the course of the 15 years that we've been here, we've had several individuals in our church who were practicing homosexuals at the time that they attended our church. And the work of Christ covers that sin as well. But I just mentioned a couple of these, these areas where evil is expanding, and there are, of course, many, many others. By the way, it was pointed out to me this morning that it was exactly 10 years ago today that we had our first service uh, that was a combination of the Bay Area Bible Church and Pine Valley Baptist Church. It was the, that was the 10 years ago today, November fifteenth, nineteen 1999, that that first, first service took place. It had nothing to do with evil. I don't know why, but it just, it just reminded me of that, <laughs> so that was a good thing. Don Tippett's the one that reminded me of. It. But I just mentioned a couple of areas where evil is expanding. There are many, many areas that we could point out. And we might be tempted to think that this is a unique phenomenon, unique to our day. But it's not. Verses one through four of Genesis chapter six paint a picture of increasing evil and wickedness among the members of the human race in the days immediately preceding the great flood. And the point was then, and it is now, that the Lord will not allow either individuals or a culture to continue on in a state of wickedness and debauchery for an unlimited period of time. In this chapter, we learn that fertility is a manifestation of God's blessing, as it was celebrated in chapter 5. But human survival is not dependent upon procreation alone. There must be a corresponding obedience on the part of humanity to God's moral order. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do today, I'd like for you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and let's look again at verses 1 through 4 where we see this account, this this relation of increasing evil. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that daughters were born to them. Like we said last week, so far so good. Nothing wrong with fertility and procreation. But then in verse 2, something is terribly wrong. And we'll get that evaluation by God today, by the way, in verse 5. But we sense already something is wrong when verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. That's the word tov. It could also be understood as good. That the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men. Of renown. Now, we covered several very difficult, challenging, exegetical problems last week. We won't revisit that. But what I want to remind you is that things were becoming increasingly evil. And we're going to see God's evaluation of the situation in today's lesson. And it's not going to be, as they say, a pretty picture. It's a very serious picture. Now, look at verses 5 through 8. This is what God thinks of unrestrained evil in a culture or a civilization. Then the Lord saw... That the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The wickedness of the human race brought pain to God and judgment to the world, a judgment that can only be escaped by God's grace. It's interesting, if we go back to verse 2, we see the observation of the sons of God. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, or tov, or good, Then we get to verse 5. We see what the Lord sees. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Two different perspectives in this case. Verse 5 reveals God's evaluation of the situation presented in the first four verses of this chapter. Again, The sons of God had one view. They saw something. They evaluated and thought it was told. It was good. God saw the same thing and evaluated it as bad. And the prophet says, woe to those who call something that's bad good and something good bad. We can't do that. We've got to eventually in our lives line up our view with God's view. The New Testament calls it being in conformity to the person of Christ or to the character of Christ. That's why, that's why oftentimes you'll read books on spirituality and they'll talk about becoming Christ-like in our behavior. And that's not a bad phrase, actually. It's very biblical Phrase. It doesn't mean we become God, heaven forbid, but we're to be conformed to Christ's thinking, Christ's actions, the way Christ spoke. And these people were doing anything but that. So when God evaluates us, how does he see us? We might see ourselves one way. We can fool ourselves. We can look in the mirror and say, you know, that's not too bad. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. We can look and say, that's not too bad. What I'm doing is not really bad at all. But is God evaluating your life and my life? Now, we all need to do our own. This is not something I want you to evaluate someone else's today. We're, we're all to evaluate our own lives. Is he looking at my life in the same way I'm looking at my life? Or rather, am I looking at my life in the same way that he looks at my life? And here we see, we see a case where there's a, a this disjointedness. It wasn't the same, and it's not going to do the people any good. We need to conform to God's view of ourselves. And not to what we might fool ourselves into thinking about ourselves. The sons of God took for themselves, the passage says, whomever they chose. It was their choice. Their own volition is shining through in this passage. But in verse 6 it says, God was grieved in his heart. Their actions were grieving God. Now that's quite a contrast, isn't it? Because men and women, we'll just use the generic term men mostly they, but this is not a sexual thing. Men and women had taken their God-given capacity for choice. And rather than choosing to do good, they used that gracious gift of choice and chose to do evil. Right under God's nose. And somehow, they think they're going to get away with it. Well, God doesn't work that way. He's omnipresent. He sees everything. The response of God here can be divided up into in basically two parts. His pain and his plan. His plan is pretty straightforward, so I'll cover that one first. And then we're going to spend the last portion of our time together on his pain, which is a much more difficult subject theologically. How can God suffer pain? But let's look at his plan, because his plan is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. I'm going to wipe them out, he says. I will destroy them. I don't know, and I don't know how much explanation we need about that. That's not a very good evaluation. The, the Hebrew term maha means literally to blot out. It was used in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 13, by an unnamed prophet, but probably Isaiah, in the days of Manasseh, the evil king of Israel. And, and the prophet says, or Lord says, speaking through the prophet, And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and then turning it upside down. If you lived, and I know many of you did in the era before dishwashers, this is a very apt illustration, isn't it? And We didn't always just get to put it in there and punch the button and then pull them back out when they're clean. You typically, you would wash them and you'd take a rag and you'd wipe it and then you'd put it on some sort of towel and let it kind of air dry for a little bit. At least that's the way we did it back in our house. Well, that's the metaphor that's being used to it. That's what God's going to do to Israel. Because the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. Just like in the days of Noah. He's going to take and he's going to wipe Jerusalem and Judah just like a dish. And then he's going to set it down just like a dish. As if Judah or Jerusalem could do anything about that at all. Judah and Jerusalem for centuries had been sassy with God. They thought they could do whatever they wanted to do, and then God would somehow continue to bless them because they were God's covenanted people. Now, they were God's covenanted people. True. But he still expected a certain behavior out of them. And guess what? There is a sense in which you individually are God's covenanted person now in terms of the church, a little different sense in terms of the the nation Israel. But we're special people before God. We're a royal priesthood before God. But it doesn't mean just because we're royalty in that sense that we can do whatever we want to do, that we can behave in any way that we want to behave. And that's what this whole chapter is about. This chapter ought to scare the bejibbers, whatever that means. Ought to scare the gibbers out of a nation or a culture that is not walking in fellowship with him. And it ought to scare the be gibbers out of any individual that looks at God and says, I know this is what you said, but... You know, those words should never come out of our mouth. If the first phrase is, I know this is what the Word of God says, there ought not to be any but after it. You understand that? If it says this, then there ought to be, and I'm going to do it. Otherwise, you just keep your mouth shut. Don't say but after one of the Lord's commands. Don't say I understand it. But that's what these people in the days of Manasseh did, and that's what the people in the days of Noah did, and it didn't work out really well for either one of them. Really poorly, in fact. You see, Manasseh was the antithesis of King David. If David was the best king, humanly speaking, outside of our Lord Jesus Christ in the future, but if David was the best king that Israel ever had, it's very probable that Manasseh was the worst. We talk about an incredible contrast here. So the prophet uses the same word that is used in Genesis about God blotting them out, him wiping them out like a dish. He uses this in 2 Kings Chapter twenty-one. But David himself also used this term centuries early. Centuries earlier in Psalm chapter fifty one, verse one, in a totally different context. But the idea is still there. When David asked God to wipe out his transgression, you remember that? David had been engaged in this extremely sinful pattern, had been walking out of fellowship with God, we think, for at least a year. And you know this this story. He sees Bathsheba on the rooftop. I've been to that place where at least they think that David's palace was. And it's so interesting. You can see right down the terrace. If someone was up on the roof, you could see them easily. Now, you wouldn't be able to see them in, in detail, but you could sur- certainly see that person. He sees Bathsheba, calls for her, commits adultery with her. Most likely it was his idea, not so much hers. She didn't have a, a lot to say about it. It doesn't appear that way anyway. Has her husband killed. You know the whole story. And then walks out of fellowship for approximately a year until Nathan the prophet confronts him. Remember that famous parable? That says, you are the man. And David confesses immediately. But in Psalm 51, what David's doing is that a time later, he he takes that instant when he confesses. And then he expands that into an entire psalm. What was he thinking when he was confessing? So that's what Psalm 51 is. David says, I have sinned before God. In 2 Samuel. But here he's expanding it. And as part of this expansion, he asks God to blot out his transgressions. To just completely blot them out. And that's, that's the same type of metaphor. Here are David's transgressions, and God is just wiping them clean, where there's nothing left. And so in the same way that God is going to wipe our transgressions clean, he's also going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth because of their evil. And he's going to do that to this antediluvian generation as well. The idea... Is that the judgment of God. When it happens. It's going to be a complete judgment. Upon all that is unrighteous. When God pours out his wrath. It is not an insignificant thing. And we're going to see it in Genesis 6. We saw it with the northern kingdom in the Old Testament. When the Assyrians came down and wiped them out. And we're going to see it with the southern kingdom. When the Babylonians come and wipe them out. That's what's being referred to in 2 Kings. But these are just glimpses. We can almost call these shadows of an expression of the wrath of God that is to come in the future. When God truly pours his wrath out upon those who have refused to trust Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. Because you see, there was a sense, a real sense, in which on that hill outside of Jerusalem on the, last, uh, the day of the last Passover, that our Lord poured his wrath out upon his Son and judged all of our sins in him. The wrath of God was poured out, out upon Jesus Christ so that there's no need for you to ever experience the wrath of God. And if you come here today and you, you've never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I've got to tell you, you don't want to experience the wrath of God. You don't want to do that. Because while these are temporal expressions, the wrath of God expressed in eternity is forever. And there's no need, my friends, for God so loved the world. He loves you deeply, dearly, tenderly loves you. With with such an incredible love that he sent his son to take that wrath upon himself so it wouldn't have to be expressed to you. A. W. Tozer once said, uh, he's a theologian of a the past generation, but A. W. Tozer once said, I think very eloquently, if you choose to pay the penalty for your own sins, to ex- to experience the wrath of God yourself, you're free to do that. But just understand, you're going to do it forever. Jesus Christ did it once for all. The Book of Hebrews tells us for everyone, and that includes you. And I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care how good you've been. Occasionally, how people come say, "Hey, Bruce, appreciate that gospel presentation." Need idea, but you have no idea. No idea about what? You have no idea about the things I've done. You have no clue as to how evil I've been. And sometimes they'll start listing these things. i say, stop, wait a second. I don't care how evil you've been. I don't care how the bad things that you've done. Yeah, they may have been bad. I don't care because God paid for those through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. The, the blood of Jesus, as we say, covers all sin. And that includes yours. So if you're here today and you've never experienced the joy of salvation, I want you to know that the text, the scriptures tell us very clearly to believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, to place your faith upon him, not to try to get better. Now, as a Christian, you need to, you, certainly we need to clean things up, of course, but not to be saved so we can be conformed to the image of Christ. But in order to be saved, we we simply express simple faith in Christ. Christ, Faith in who he was and what he did. It may go something like this. And you don't have to say it out loud. If you're sitting here today and you're wondering, well, how would I do this? In the privacy of your own thoughts, you're thinking something right now. I know you are. Nobody says a blank mind. Nobody's mind is a blank slate. You're thinking something right now. But in your own thoughts, you can say, you know, Father, what he's saying makes sense to me. I know I've done a lot of things that would separate me from your own holiness. And I've realized over the course of my life, there's, I can't be good enough. I can't be good enough to earn your favor. I trust right now, Father. And you say these thoughts in your own mind right now. Right now, Father, I am placing my faith in Jesus Christ to forgive my sins. Because I know I can't do it myself. And to grant me eternal life. And guess what? You know something? If you did that just now, right there, right where you're sitting... You didn't even have to look up. you can be looking down right now. You just had eternal life imputed to you, and you never lose it. And you may say, that sounds awfully easy. Can't hardly believe that. And you know what? I'm going to agree with you. I think it is way too easy. I think God made it way too easy on all of us. But you see, he made it easy on you. But he didn't make it easy on his son. We should never forget that. The death that his son died, the suffering his son went through on our behalf, was unspeakable. And heaven help you if you turn it down. If you turn down this grace gift and say, I'm going I'm to do it on my own. Heaven help you, my friend. Because no one else is going to be able to. I pray for you today that you'll understand that God loved you incredibly. He still does, and he's calling you right now. So if this is your situation, I urge you to. I urge you to consider Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. So David uses this term also about wiping out his transgressions. This is post-salvation, but that's going to happen to you too. All this, if, you, if, you, if you thought those thoughts in your mind just now, God has wiped out all of your past sins, including the ones you're thinking of right now. Well, I did this. Can he wipe that one out? Yes, yeah, he can wipe that one out. Whatever it is, you cannot out the grace of God. Jesus Christ paid for them all on the cross. He didn't pass any over, no matter how shocking they are to you. And I'm not encouraging sin by any means. But I am encouraging grace. God loves you so much. By grace. In this passage we see it in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. By grace, one man will be spared. Along with his family, that being Noah. But everyone else is going to perish. Oh, yes, there's going to be a period of time for repentance. But the period will become a time of ridicule of God rather than repentance. And it is that way today sometimes, too. Don't you hear these people sometimes on television? I've seen them do it. Well, if there is a God, why don't they just strike me dead right now? Here I am, strike me dead. And they ridicule, and they ridicule, and they ridicule. But there will come a time when the ridicule is going to stop. And it will be too late for repentance. But Noah and his clan are going to survive. Now this doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. And this doesn't mean that Noah deserved grace. By definition, you don't deserve grace. But it means on the whole, Noah was leading a life of obedience to God. Even the animal kingdom will suffer as a result of the wickedness of man. So God's plan is unambiguous. But what about his pain? Look at verse 6 again for me, with me, if you will. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and his, he was grieved in his heart. Does God really have regret? Can God be grieved by the actions of his creation? The question, does God have emotions, has produced heated emotional debate over the course of the church age. Before I answer that question, I need to get a little academic, but don't be intimidated by this. You can handle it, and there's a reason for it. It's going to help you immensely in answering this very important question. What does it mean that God is grieved? Can God really be sorry about something? Can he have regrets about something? Well, if you'll, if you'll hang in there with me for about eight minutes or so, we'll cover something about God's self-disclosure that I think will help tremendously, and it'll make a world of sense to you after this. At least, that's my plan. God has revealed himself to mankind. His self-disclosure is one of the graces that he pours out upon us and should never be taken for granted. He is there, as Francis Schaeffer wrote, and he's not silent. And that's a great blessing. We are theists. Christians are theists. That means that we believe that God is both immanent and transcendent. He exists independently of his creation. That means he's transcendent. When theologians say transcendence, that's what it means that God exists independently of his creation. Now, If you're in the East and you're in some of the Eastern religions and you're you're studying pantheism, that's the part they would deny. They would deny that God is everywhere present here, not in the same way as they would accept that God is everywhere present here. They would deny that he exists outside of his creation. But as Christian theists, we believe that God both exists outside of his creation and he's imminent that he interacts in a personal way with his creation. So theologians have proposed three theories on how a transcendent God who exists outside of his creation could reveal himself to his creation. Let me put it another way. Three theories how an infinite God could reveal himself to a finite mind. Some of you have heard these before, but many of you have not. The first theory that has been proposed is called the univocal theory of divine disclosure the univocal theory and under this theory the words that we have in the scriptures are a one to one supply a one to one correspondence with the way that God really is that's called the univocal theory now that is rejected as far as i know 100% you may be scratching head, how in the world would we reject that idea that the words of the scripture Uh, univocally, in a one-to-one correspondent, represent how God really is. Well, think about this for a moment. In order to understand God perfectly, that's the key word, in order to understand him perfectly, who would you have to be? God. You see, you'd have to be God, and that's that's recognized across the board. So nobody holds to a one-to-one correspondence. Everyone recognizes that I've ever read. Everyone recognizes that there's some mystery to God. Because he's infinite and I'm finite. A finite mind cannot totally comprehend the infinite. Does that make sense? Don't try to... It hurts my brain to think of it too, too, too far into the future. But finite minds cannot totally comprehend the infinite. So a univocal view, a divine self-disclosure, is disregarded. But there's a second view. And that's called an equivocal view. And that means that there's basically no correspondence that there's, there's no correspondence to the way that God really is by, as to what's written on the page. So that, uh, someone who takes an equivocal view would say something like, well, I know the text says that God was grieved in his heart, but God doesn't have a heart and he doesn't grieve, so it doesn't mean that at all. Well, listen, for, think about that for a second. If it doesn't mean that at all, if there's no correspondence between the way God really is and the way that he's re- revealed on these pages, has any revelation taken place? No. It's pointless. The discussion is meaningless. If there's no correspondence, it's the whole endeavor is pointless. So we would reject this idea that we can have a perfect correspondence, and we would also reject the idea that we can have no correspondence. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people that would say, I don't hold to an equivocal view, they preach an equivocal view. And this is where we get messed up. When we say, God has no emotions whatsoever. In order to say that, we have to say, I know that's what the text says, but it doesn't mean anything like that. And that's where we make a mistake. Because if we say that, are you following me? There is no revelation. If, it, if there's no correspondence between reality and the words on the page nothing has been communicated. Now this is going to make sense in a minute because there's a third view that has been proposed that as far as I know in practice at least every recognized theologian at least from a Christian standpoint would hold to and that's called the analogical view. What this view means what this view says is God is like this. God is like this. This is the closest that God could come to explaining his infinite perfections to a finite creature. See, God's, to say God's a genius would be an understatement, wouldn't it? But you have, you have this genius God that had to figure out a way to reveal himself to something that's been created. Something that's finite. How does the infinite reveal himself to something that's finite? Well, there can't be a one-to-one correspondence. It's impossible. You would have to be God in order to perfectly understand so he comes up with an analogy this is what i'm like the closest thing in your mind to me is this so to answer the questions does god have emotions yes of course he does do the emotions of god correspond in a one to one way with human emotions No, of course not. No one who is a serious student of theology would even suggest that. So yes, God loves, but his love, while it may be like our love, and that's the closest thing that he can describe in our lives to what is going on in him, it's not exactly the same. We can all see that, can't we? I mean, we, we love people, but we don't love them perfectly. We don't love them totally objectively. We don't love them consistently. Even the people we love deeply, we kind of have ups and downs. That's not God's love. God's love is perfect. It's consistent. It is, it's objective. The key, the key idea is perfect. So he's got this perfection. We're not talking about this idea of Plato, those of you that are philosophers here. This is not a Platonic idea. You're laughing. But the, we're not, we have this perfection that is God, and he's revealing it to, our, to us by way of analogy. But there is a mitigating correspondence between our emotion and God's emotion. So we we can't say something like, well, I know God is love, but his love is so totally other than our love that that it looks nothing like our love at all. No. If it was that way, we've reverted back to an equivocal method of revelation, and no revelation has taken place. So God is revealing himself to us in this way. This is the closest in his divine perfections. This is the closest that he can come to explaining his infinite perfections to a finite creature. And it's by way of analogy. Kenneth Matthews, professor of Old Testament at Beeson Divinity School, Samford University, put it this way. Listen carefully. This will be helpful. When we consider the metaphor of God as a feeling person who loves is angry and grieves, the aim of the figure is to point to a mitigated correspondence between human experience and God. This does not say, let me repeat, this does not say that the emotions of humans and the emotions of God are equivalent in their entirety or in their quality. For God does not grieve in the same way as man grieves. Nor is he angry in the same fashion as sinful mortals. But to conclude to conclude that such language reveals nothing about God's essential personhood makes all such language pointless. See, so it can't be equivocal. Never say, I know that's what the Bible says, but God is nothing like that. If he's nothing like that, no communication has taken place. Hope that makes sense. So, when Paul tells the Ephesian believers, also in a context of sin, not to grieve the Holy Spirit, the intention is that we understand in our finite minds that God is grieved by our sin. Don't overthink it. If that's what the text says, that's the way God wants to be understood. He wants us to understand that when we sin, it grieves him. Now, we can do a lot of theological gymnastics and say, well, that's impossible. God can't be grieved. That's what the text says. And if you say it's impossible, he cannot be grieved. We have ripped the pages out of divine self-disclosure and said there is no self-disclosure. So don't try to overthink it. That's what he wants you to understand. In our finite minds, he wants us to understand he's not happy about it. He's not happy at all. And the quicker that we can, can conform our thinking to his thinking, the better we're going to be. Now, when Genesis chapter 6 explains that God was sorry that he had made man, we, are understand, we are understand that it was not God's design that man used his volition to rebel against the creator. He's not saying that he's sorry in the same way you may tell your wife, hey, listen, I'm sorry about that, because that implies you did something wrong. But it is, it is an attitude on God's part where what's happening is not what he intended. When verse 6 relates that God was grieved in the process, we're to understand that God was grieved. Sometimes I fear that in the contemplation of God in his infinite perfections, We tend to become too smart by half. This is the way, and these are the words, that God has chosen to reveal Himself. And if God chose these words, they must be perfect. And there must be no better way to explain it than that. You see the point? If He chose it, this is the way He wants to be understood. So it is to our peril when we read a text like this and say, well, God can't be grieved. He can't mean that. That's what it says. And that's the way he wants to be understood. So don't overthink it and miss the point. So in summary, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. We see a contrast with what we found in verse 2. The sons of God saw, the the daughters of men thought it was good. And then they did something that I assume that they also thought was good, and they took whomever they chose. And that doesn't sound real pleasant, frankly, to me. They took whomever they chose. It really sounds almost like the sons of God, whatever view you take, and we'll revisit that. We visited last week. But that the sons of God were putting themselves in a position of sovereignty, doesn't it? If they're going to just take whomever they choose, it's just only their decision. doesn't sound... Like there's any humility there. So they see something and evaluate it as good. The loss the Lord sees it and evaluates it as evil. They took whomever they chose. The Lord is grieved. We ought not to miss the point. And so God says down in verse 7, this is his plan. Remember, we have this plan and his pain. His plan is that he's going to wipe it out. One of my favorite singers of a past generation was a fellow by the name of Jim Croce. And Jim Croce was a kind of a crossover between a rock and roll singer and a country western singer. Some of you remember him. He had a bad, bad Leroy Brown was one of his songs, and, and uh, you don't mess around with Slim. and Jim, remember that? You don't mess around with Jim, because Jim was a big old country boy, and he's going to rip you apart from limb to limb with his hands if you mess with him. Well, guess what? I got one better than that. You don't mess around with God. And we do it all the time. We act as though, since we can't see Him, we can shut our Bibles and not even think about Him from time to time, that we can just go on our merry way and do whatever we want to do, and there will be no consequences. Oh, that's foolish, my friend. Don't think that for a minute. Yes, God is love. You hear this nonsense sometimes that, well, the God of the New Testament is love, and the God of the Old Testament was God of wrath. Oh, my friends, there's love in the Old Testament. There's grace in the Old Testament. Or there wouldn't be any people in the Old Testament. But have you ever read to the end? There's also wrath in the New Testament. But my point to you today is that there's no reason for any of us. There's no reason at all for any of us ever to have to suffer the wrath of God. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, there's no reason for you to have to suffer the wrath of God because God paid the penalty for your sin on the cross just like he paid the penalty for mine. Nobody in this room is any better than you or any worse than you. We're all in the same boat when it comes to that. Some of us have just accepted that free gift. And to accept a free gift doesn't make us any more worthy. But I know I'm speaking this morning to primarily people who have already trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. And let me issue this warning because that's what this passage does for us today. And the warning is this, that we may think that we're getting away with it, whatever it may be. Because nobody else sees whatever it may be. But God sees it all. So if, if our lives are not being lived in conformity to Christ, maybe today is a good time to, to commit that to prayer. And to ask God to help us live in conformity with his son. So we won't have to experience God's discipline. Now technically speaking, the believer in Lord Jesus Christ will never experience the wrath of God. That's reserved for the non-Christian. But you can certainly experience the discipline of God, the chastening of God, the, the belt of God. I remember those days from when I was a kid. You didn't have to threaten to whip me but once. And I tried not to do that same thing again because I didn't want to get the belt. And God loves you, just like your parents loved you. God loves you, and he doesn't want to take His belt off. But we need to live in conformity with his plan so that that doesn't happen. So two applications. The wickedness of the human race brought pain to God and judgment to the world. A judgment that can only be escaped by God's grace. Well, more on that as we pick up the narrative of Noah next time. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are very patient with us. We thank you that you were patient with the antediluvian civilization. Give them 120 years to change their minds. I know that just the numbers don't work out for us with 120 years, but I, I know you've been exceedingly patient with us all and we thank you for it. But help us, Heavenly Father, through your indwelling Holy Spirit to live lives that are in conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, He is our Lord, He is our Master, and we want to serve Him. Help us to do so in the days to come. We'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.